Candy McNeil, a psychotherapist here in Guelph, and this is my radio program, Open Minds. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. This show is dedicated to reducing the stigma around mental illness so that people who struggle don't feel unnecessarily bad about themselves and so that the people around them don't come to negative conclusions without having all the facts. I wish we lived in a culture where people don't feel any worse about seeing a therapist than they do about seeing the dentist and that they didn't feel any worse about needing help for depression or anxiety than they do about needing help with cancer or MS. I'll bring you stories from both mental health professionals and everyday people who struggle that I really hope will open your mind around the topic of mental illness. One thing I've learned in my 15 years in this field is that contrary to what we see in the media or hear in only half-told stories, mental illness is actually not a sign of weakness or laziness. It doesn't make someone automatically dangerous or stupid, and it isn't a moral failing or a character weakness. In fact, many of my clients have been some of the most hardworking, strong, smart, sensitive, and likable people you'd ever want to meet. They're people I'd enjoy having as a family member, friend, or partner. But often, they feel judged in a negative way. They feel less than or not good enough because of their mental illness, and they're very afraid that friends or partners, co-workers, roommates, and family members will think less of them, too. But I think that in the same way that we don't blame someone who gets leukemia or think less of someone with heart disease, we also shouldn't blame someone who gets bipolar or ADHD or any other mental illness. If we can be compassionate to people who have an illness in their heart or their liver, then it's only reasonable to show compassion to people who have an illness in their brain. Mental illnesses are complex and only barely understood even by doctors and researchers. Our best guess and honestly, right now that's all it is, our best guess is that mental illnesses are the result of a very complex combination of genetic, biochemical, environmental, and interpersonal factors. The same can be said of some kinds of cancers, and when it comes to those, we would never dream of telling someone, or ourselves if we're the sufferer, to just get over it or snap out of it or think that they could get better by themselves. If someone is struggling with cancer, we encourage the person to see an oncologist and to take powerful drugs like chemotherapy if it might help, and to take time off of work or school to let themselves heal. But when it's depression or an eating disorder or some other mental illness, some people think they should be able to get better on their own without professional help or medication, and that they should be able to do this on top of work and school and relationships. I wonder why the contradiction? And what effect does it have for society to give these messages about mental illnesses? Well, the point of this show is to explore those very issues by sharing interviews from experts in the field and from people who have mental illnesses. You can hear firsthand what it's like to suffer and sometimes recover and live in our culture when your brain is ill. Whatever your current beliefs are about mental illness, your own or those in people around you, I hope you'll listen with an open mind. For today's show, I had the unbelievable good fortune to interview Dr. Joan Borisenko. In addition to degrees from Harvard Medical School and a psychology degree from Harvard, she is also the author of Minding the Body, Mending the Mind, which was a New York Times bestseller, as well as the author of 13 other books. 
I had the opportunity to meet her when I attended a workshop she was presenting called Writing Down the Light, which was about transforming pain and trauma and loss into healing. She was such an interesting and hilarious and empathic and smart speaker that I decided to ask her if she'd do an interview, and to my amazement, she agreed. Here is some of what she had to say about mental health, mental illness, and stigma in our culture. Thank you so much, Dr. Borisenko, Joan, for um, agreeing to this interview. Um, maybe you could tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. Just in terms of my professional life, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and before that, I got a Ph.D. in cellular biology from Harvard Medical School and was a cancer researcher for a number of years. And then I encountered mental illness for the second time in my life, this time in my father. And what happened was that he'd been diagnosed with um, a cancer, And part of his treatment was a drug that created in him a manic psychosis. And the doctor, we kept saying, but we don't even recognize this man. There's so much pressure to his speech, and he can't listen, and he's just in in this terrible state. And this was before I was a psychologist that I could even identify what that state really was. And... The doctor said, you know, I'm sorry, but it's all we have for him. And if he stops taking the drug, the cancer is going to get him. And we felt we were between a rock and a, and a hard place. And there was no one back then who really listened to people who were ill and who had developed mental illness as a result of their treatment, either as, as a result of fear or for him it was chemically induced But he had to have some surgery. And so they took him off the medicine that was creating the manic state. And he came back just to normal, just the wonderful man that we had always known and loved, a very kind, compassionate, good listener. And we had the pleasure of a few weeks of him coming back to that state And as he recovered from the surgery, he felt, I gather, now this is my imagining of his state, that he had to go back on that medicine again and didn't want to be lost there again. And so my parents at that point lived in a high-rise apartment building, and he waited till about 3 in the morning when my mother fell asleep, and then he jumped out the window. And... That was a life-changing circumstance for me. And what happens to people, I think, who have that kind of trauma in their life is either they despair and get depressed and lose it, and my mother did. She, She spent the last 13 years of her life after he died feeling guilty that she didn't see it coming or stop it and became depressed. I decided that I had to give meaning to the loss that the family had. And I said, it's time to stop working with cancer cells in Petri dishes and start working with people who are anxious and depressed 
or maybe having a chemical reaction like my father did. And so I retrained as a psychologist, and I was fortunate enough to be able to help set up a mind-body clinic at one of the Harvard teaching hospitals and work with people who had cancer, who had AIDS, um, who were depressed, who were anxious, and all of those people became my teachers. And what I learned is that the hard bumps and difficulties we have in life are actually the way that we grow our minds, the way that we grow our souls, the way that we grow our compassion. But often, people don't have the opportunity to do that. They haven't found the right therapist, or they haven't found the right therapy, uh, or they feel that it's hopeless. And I want to tell people, it's never hopeless. (laughs) That... In its own way, and I don't mean to be glib about this because I know how difficult it is, but that someone's mental illness can be a gift for someone else. My father's mental illness was a gift for me. And, you know, every time before I give a lecture, because I speak really worldwide, every time I give a lecture to cancer survivors or people with mental illness, I take a minute before and I dedicate it to my father, and I thank him. And so that was, that was one, of <laughs> one of the experiences that I wanted to share with you. That's a beautiful story, and it is exactly fitting with the idea of this show, which is about destigmatizing mental illness. And, and you're saying not only should it not be stigmatized, but you can see a gift in it. Not that you would have wished that for your father, but that there could be growth from that for you um, and for other people, right? That sometimes growth comes from those really difficult times. We seem to live in a culture where if you have you know, a broken leg, everybody wants to rush to sign your cast. But if you have a broken brain for a little while or for a long while, then people want to run the other way. Um, and I think you have such a, a unique combination with both your science background and your psychology background to look at that in a, in a different way. Um, can you tell me, did you feel stigmatized by either of your experiences with mental illness? Well... The one with my father, actually, I didn't feel feel that my father was stigmatized. I thought his condition was simply ignored. Mm. It was ignored. It was belittled. When my mother and I went in really asking for help from the physician, the physician just essentially dismissed us Mm -hmm. and said, look, there's nothing we can do. And fortunately, things have changed from that time. Oftentimes within hospitals, you have specialists who deal with mental health issues that come as a result of illness or as a result of treatment. And so I feel in a certain way um, that many physicians who aren't in a hospital setting actually don't know enough to give people the kind of support they need. And I would say to all of your listeners, if you or a loved one is in a situation like that and somebody treats you dismissively, 
it's time to find another physician. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really very, very important. Um, it's crucial, in fact. I wish that I had known enough to do it then, um, but I didn't. And, and that's okay because I, I learned from the experience, and that's all we can say. We learn from experience. It also sounds, though, like you and your mom were open to that help and seeking it out. We were. And so, so that brings a different question, which is why didn't you feel stigmatized by that? Why didn't you feel like this was something you should hush up or cover or not make a big deal of when so many people feel like, Depression is not okay to talk about. Anxiety isn't okay to talk about. Even manic episodes brought on by medications are often for people a source of embarrassment or like they failed in some way. What do you think it was about your family that meant, like, no, we want help? You know, I think, I think what it was was that both my mother and I got downright furious Mm. (laughs) sometimes anger is healthy that's right it helps you make a boundary and it's like what right does he have to be so dismissive here and what we couldn't find at that time we just didn't know how to access somebody who could really help us and that's why I determined to be that person so when I saw somebody like that I then knew what to do, how to speak to physicians, how to get them the help that they needed. And the most important thing, I think, in a hospital setting is to have people who can really proactively tell you, how are you feeling with this medicine? Because it it could have this side effect. Or it's natural to feel anxious or it's natural to feel depressed when you have a physical illness. And how are you feeling right now? I think it's up to the healthcare profession to destigmatize it by asking the right questions. And a lot of healthcare systems are doing much better at that this day. And if yours isn't, you know, vote with your feet, go someplace else. Right, that's an excellent point. Yeah. You're talking about, you know, how physicians and the healthcare system might destigmatize mental illness a bit. Um, now that you have your education both in psychology and sciences, do you have a, an idea of future research directions or what else might help to destigmatize mental illness? You know, I think people sharing their stories mm-hmm. destigmatizes it. You remember William Styron's book about darkness? I think Darkness Visible was the title of it. And it was a book about depression. And when people see, you know, a very famous writer writing so honestly about depression, then they realize, oh my, it can happen to anyone. And, you know, frequently people say, oh, you're depressed, you know, cheer up, get over it. And they don't understand what it actually is. Right. Don't understand. You can't just cheer yourself up. That's not not what's happening. There's all kinds of chemical things happening. And when somebody like that publicly shares their story, then you feel, oh, this is actually within the very normal frame of things. Mm -hmm. This is something that happens to people. I heard you say earlier uh, that, you know, the facts can be dry, but tell a story and then you can hang the facts on that where you need to. And that really struck me. And I think 
there's a lot of wisdom in that um, and that idea that maybe a story can convey something that the statistics alone wouldn't. You're a big advocate of telling a story and, and using um, that narrative. Do you think that always needs to be shared? If somebody doesn't have an audience to hear that, is it still healing for them to write the story or tell the story or is it in being yes. witnessed? It's, I think it's very healing to be witnessed by another person. And you have to take great care on who you choose as your witness. It needs to be somebody, first of all, that you feel you could tell your story to who has enough presence and inner strength to hear it without flinching, mm-hmm. to really accept the story because it traumatizes you again. If you know someone says, yes, certainly I'll hear your story, and then you see them freaking out (laughs) from your story. So you have to be careful whose ear you choose. And that that ear could be anybody. You know, maybe maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a chaplain or a priest or a rabbi, uh, anything like that. Uh, Sometimes it's people in a workshop, it's strangers, and a safe place is created and you can share a story. And that's the beginning of healing, when you realize, oh, there's enough space here in this person or in these people to hear this story and to witness what I say and to ask me compassionate questions that allow me to say more. And that's healing in and of itself. You know, there was a study of therapists years ago, and they compared the best-trained therapists to empathetic college professors who were good listeners, and the college professors did better than the therapists. Oh, dear. But you make a great point, right? Yeah. It's it's being able to tell your story and to feel like somebody is listening who's interested, who can handle hearing that. That's right. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, therapy is much more specific than it used to be. We now have cognitive behavior therapy that didn't exist before. You know, we have dialectic behavior therapy. We have for trauma EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing that reintegrates the brain. Um, We know more as therapists. And so the great combination is when you have an empathetic, accepting therapist who does not stigmatize you, for being mentally ill, but who simply knows these things can happen to anybody. They're no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. And who also really has the methodology that's evidence-based, that we know, yes, these are the techniques that really do work, and that's the winning combination. So that's what someone would want to look for. And one thing that I just want to reflect back, uh, not taking too much of your time, but is that uh, so? There's you're a scientist, you're a psychologist, and you've also been talking about being a spiritual director and yes. bringing that element of it in as well. Um, and and so I just wonder um, how you think all of those elements might fit together when somebody is struggling with depression or anxiety. You know, is a doctor going to diagnose? Is a 
is a minister going to say it's a lack of faith? Is the psychologist going to say your cognitions are distorted? <laughs> uh, is there any coherent way of understanding why a university student, for example, who was doing great in high school in their first year of university really starts to experience panic attacks or uh, depression or you know really low self-esteem? Well, you know, putting all the parts together is an important thing because sometimes there's the old idea that if somebody um, has a hammer, they see everything as a nail. Right. <laughs> is that the way that aphorism goes, something like that? Yep, I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, and that's it. So I think, you know, we have to be careful consumers of mental health. Frequently, psychiatrists are so overbooked and the hammer they have are drugs of all kinds. And I'm a person who believes in using whatever works. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a medication is just what you need. Other times, it's actually not what you need. But when the physician has 10 minutes and that's all your insurance is going to give them, that's what they do. And so I think it's very, very important to be a good consumer that you might want to see a psychiatrist and you might be lucky enough to get one who gives you some extra time and more than medication or someone who says, hey, let's start a little medication, take the edge off this, but I know a terrific therapist, counselor, or psychologist. Or, you know, for me with working um, in a mind-body clinic, particularly at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, your question about faith and God really came up because I think it's very common when you have an illness, it could be a physical illness or a mental illness, to say, why me? How come? You know, I, <laughs> why have I been given this particular cross to bear? And if you're depressed, part of the problem with depression is you're likely to blame yourself and say, I did something wrong, it's punishment from God. And you know, a psychologist can talk to you about this for a long time and it doesn't shift. But if you sit down with a minister or sit down with a rabbi, also, and there are a lot of ministers and rabbis who've been trained in mental health, then they can say, you know what, let's explore this. And in fact, I know so many people who explore issues of why I'm ill, and they come out with their faith really restored when it might have been broken before. And so you're right. There's a lot of different aspects that come in here, and that's where we can really help each other, mm -hmm. you know, because if, if, if you are out front with your friends and say, you know, I've had an anxiety problem for a long time, or I've had panic attacks and I'm afraid now I'm getting, like, afraid to go out of the house. Whatever it is, most likely one of your friends has had these things too, hmm. whether they've talked about it or not, or they know somebody who's dealt with it. And you begin to get um, a set of referrals and you begin to realize, oh, you know, I'm just human, and maybe this would be a good resource in my community. And it really is all about having the courage to share with each other, because I think the whole face of mental illness is changing. 
people are definitely talking about it. One of the things that I've been most moved by listening to you talk um, is how not only professionally but personally you've been able to transform something that could have made you feel really rotten about yourself or experiences that could have made you feel mm -hmm. really rotten and uh, turn those into things that have been blessings for you or that have at least had silver linings. And you've been very honest about the fact that some of that has been recently, um, yeah. you know, that we'd like to think that we can do it and be over it. And again, certainly if we're talking to university students, there's this feeling of like, I'll just go to a therapist for six sessions and I'll be over it. And the sad news is you might be dealing with it in some variation for 10 or 20 or 30 years. You may deal with it your whole life. Mm -hmm. And this is actually very important for people because we live in a culture which is all about fixing everything and being perfect. And there, you know, there, there may be something you have, a particular fear that you have, and you're going to live your whole life with that fear is the truth. However, if you let that fear be your whole identity right. and you say, my life is ruined, I have this particular fear, your life will be ruined because that's exactly what you've told yourself. But if you can realize, but wait, I'm capable of experiencing joy. I'm capable of great compassion, of loving connections with other people. You greatly and vastly expand your frame of reference and your identity. And you begin to realize everybody has moments when they're afraid. Right. Everybody has times when they're depressed. Everybody has times when they're grieving. And if you say, my identity is I'm a human being, and it's kind of like, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll end with this um, metaphor. Somebody told me long ago this teaching of the Buddha. And he said, if you have suffering that's like a cup of salt, and you put it into a small bowl, the water will be undrinkable. But if you have this cup of suffering, and you put it into a lake, the water will still be sweet. And what he meant is you have to expand your identity so that it's big enough to hold it all, the good and the bad, the sad and the happy, the joy and the sorrow, because that's the nature of life. Another teaching of the Buddha uh, is life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Right. And you'll never chase all the sorrows and all the fears away. And in the end, I feel that with the proper help and holding it in that spacious way, the things that don't go away are like the grains of sand in an oyster that create the pearl. That is a fabulous way to end. Thank you so much for your time. That was really beautiful. So there you have my interview with Dr. Joan Borisenko, spelled B-O-R-Y-S-E-N-K-O. If you want to look up more of her interesting and inspiring work on the mind-body connection. I especially appreciated the piece about how she normalizes depression and anxiety and the parts about the gifts that came from her experiences with mental illness. I would love to hear your thoughts or comments about the show or suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover on upcoming shows. Please send those to my email at openminds at cfru.ca. That's openminds with an S at cfru.ca. 
A tiny disclaimer before I go that I may not be able to respond to most emails and definitely won't respond to those that are asking for help or advice with a mental health problem. For those, I want to strongly encourage you to put aside your fear of stigma and see your doctor, visit the local emergency room, or call your nearest crisis hotline. Thanks so much for listening, and please join me next week for another illuminating interview here on Open Minds.